The scripture text for today's message is from Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. Father, my heart's desire is to be useful to your people now. That I would be an instrument of their encouragement and their faith. That I would be used to increase hope for their own souls and for the souls of those they love. That you would make this message a means of healing of minds that are distressed and of hearts that may be aching, and of bodies that are sick. If you came, Lord, in the fullness of your merciful power, oh, how many good things would happen in this room now. So come, we ask you to come. We're asking in Jesus' name that you would be our teacher. Protect me from error and from attitudes that would be contradictory to the message that you deliver. So come, I pray now. Save the unbelieving and strengthen mightily for glorious, joyful service the saints in this room. Pray through Christ. Amen. As I pondered what it what it's like for a congregation and me to to move together systematically through a heavy doctrinal uh, unit like Romans 11 or 9 to 11 for that matter or Romans for that matter, as I pondered what that's like, it seemed good to me. And I don't know why I haven't thought of this before. Every so often, I don't know how often, but this is one of them, to pull back from the consistent progressive exposition of more and more sentences to rather just stop and do a whole applicatory message. What have we been talking about and what difference does it make? So assume two or three or four weeks of exposition 
And instead of tacking on a little piece of application at the end of the sermon, just give a whole sermon on, is this relevant? Does this make different? How does this matter? So that's what today is. This is one of these uh, let's pause sermons and think together about the implications of the doctrine of unconditional election. So if you're newer, perhaps I should define the doctrine in a paragraph and then move into four or five relevancies of it for us as a people, maybe even as a nation. What I mean by the doctrine of election is that before the foundation of the world, I get that phrase from Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world, God Almighty, sovereign as he is, chose whom he would bring to faith and so rescue from sin that they might be undeservingly saved. And who he would not rescue from their ongoing rebellion so that they would deservingly perish. God is God and we are not. God originates causes we do not ultimately and decisively originate any causes. I believe that's what it means to be God. Therefore, the final, decisive, ultimate explanation for all that happens in the world is God and His holy, just, wise, gracious will. Not mine. Therefore, if I am chosen to believe and trust and love and be saved through Jesus Christ, it is owing to nothing in me. That's the doctrine. Now, what difference might it make to teach such a thing or believe that and be embraced by it? Number one, let's think about what's good for us to know and what's not good for us to know. Not everything that is, is good for us to know. And some things that are, are good for us to know, which we cannot fully explain and get all our questions answered about. The first half of that point I get from Deuteronomy 29.29, where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So some things are secret. They're God's. We are not able to handle them. They would not be good for us. They would not be an honor to him if we knew them. And the other point was, and some things are good for us to know, and they raise more questions than the Bible answers. Now, put election in this category. It's good for us to know these things, but we must be content to know in part. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I think that's especially true of the doctrine of election, We are prone to ask more questions about it 
then the Bible may answer. And the danger, this is a warning to us, is that our our humble, heartfelt, teachable questions begin to slip over into suspicious accusations of the Almighty. One of the implications of this first observation, this first pastoral thought, is we can't know all of the ways that the doctrine of election is good for us to know. We can know some of them, and I'm going to point some of them out. I don't think we can begin to know all the ways that a true biblical doctrine, any of them, are good for us. And this shouldn't surprise us if we're, if we're parents, right? Because we teach our children early things that they cannot understand why they're learning. They must learn them. They don't know why. Get your elbows off the table. Why? Don't hold your spoon like this. Hold it like this. That's hard. Why? It's easier this way. Well, because in the future years, you will navigate social situations with grace if you do it this way. Which means nothing to a three-year-old. Nothing. You must teach your children things they don't know why they're learning. They take our word for it that the sun is standing still. They take our word for it that the earth is a ball. They take our word for it that green vegetables are good for them. Maybe. And they take our word for it that the little white crystals in the bag in the cupboard will kill rats and children. So don't eat those. If human parents must press upon their little ones knowledge that they cannot know why they're learning, picture the distance between us and God. It's 10,000, thousand times greater than the distance between a parent and a child. Would it be surprising then that there would be some things he would say, now you need to know this, but you don't know all the reasons it's good for you to know. I think the doctrine of election is especially true there. Americans are pragmatic and arrogant people. We're very demanding. We're demanding in connection with our pragmatism. That is, show me the payoff quickly or I'm not going to consider what you're saying. The bottom line here. And so you come to a doctrine that doesn't seem to have immediate emotional or family or relational or job or money or payoff. And you say, this is not helpful. May not even be true. And you push it aside. That's a very great sadness. We're like little children pushing aside the parents' counsel at the supper table. So let me try on my second pastoral thought to say something about why it might be good for us. And there's so many reasons. I'm pointing them out as we go along, but let's work on this one for just a minute. The doctrine of election, this is point number two, the doctrine of election has a strong tendency to make a church rigorous about the truth and about scriptures and keep it from drifting into doctrinal indifference and cultural conformity. 
The doctrine of election has a strong tendency to make us as a church rigorous about truth and about doctrine and about scripture and thus guard us from drifting into a kind of mushy doctrinal indifference and then a conformity to the culture. Because that's what's going to happen if you become doctrinally indifferent. It's happening all over the place. The doctrine of election gives tends to give fiber to flabby minds. It tends to produce robust, thoughtful Christians who are not swept away by trendy, man-centered ideas. It has an amazing conserving or preservative power, even in regard to other doctrines. I wish I could just take 20 minutes and talk about this historically and biblically, why this seems to be so. That when a church has a firm grasp on the doctrine of unconditional election, very few other things slip. Let me give you an illustration of how desperately we need as a people to think clearly about doctrine and have a clear Christ-centered worldview and not join the avalanche of our own day into doctrinal indifference. I read at the last page of Christianity Today an article by Chuck Colson. He writes there, I think, once a month or so, and they're always good. And this time he wrote an article about, he hopes and believes, fading away of postmodernism, which he defines like this. The philosophy that claims there is no transcendent truth, which holds sway in most of our academic institutions and in the broader popular culture. There are no absolute truths. What's true for you is fine. What's true for me is fine. That is the air we breathe. And he sees cracks coming in that massive institution Largely from the 9-11 atmosphere in which it's very hard for young people to believe there's no such thing as good and evil, right and wrong after that. Of course, there were plenty of 9-11s before that. There's a 9-11 every day if we have eyes to see. But that brought it home to America in a way that is causing a younger generation to be much more conservative or less postmodern than their parents. And he gives statistics about that. But here's what he says with regard to the church. And I take this very seriously and I commend it to you for your prayer and your consideration. He says, I can't think of a more critical time for pastors, scholars and lay people to be grounded in a biblical worldview and to defend it clearly to those hungering for truth. But are we prepared for such a challenge? George Barna recently completed a tour of American churches and came back with a dismaying report that most church and lay leaders, 90%, according to one survey, have no understanding of worldview. How are we going to contend with competing philosophies if we're not even rooted in our own truth system? Ironically, just as there seem to be encouraging signs in our culture, there are signs that the church is dumbing down Moving from a word-driven message to an image and emotion-driven message. Parenthesis, this is his parenthesis. Note how many Christian radio stations have recently converted from talk and preaching to all music. Close parenthesis. It would be the supreme irony and a terrible tragedy 
if we found ourselves slipping into postmodernity just when the broader culture has figured out it's a dead end. Hmm. So my contention on this second pastoral thought is the doctrine of unconditional election taught and understood awakens people from drifting in the river of inherited assumptions and no engagement of the mind. I've seen it happen over and over again. Suddenly, people are jarred by the radical God-centeredness of the Bible and the fearful man-centeredness of their own heart for years and years without their even knowing it because they'd embraced what's in the air rather than what's in the Bible. And then they're put on a quest to build a way of thinking biblically about God and the world and thus avoid the tragedy that Chuck Colson warns is coming. Namely, just as the world discovers it's a dead-end street to be indifferent to truth, the church sells its soul to the culture just when they need the church. By becoming doctrinally indifferent and just saying, oh, that doctrine doesn't help our emotions, it doesn't help our relationship, it's not a touchy-feely doctrine, it doesn't help my marriage, blah, blah, blah. It would be so sad. It would be so sad. Pastoral thought number three. The doctrine of election is one of the best ways to test whether we have reversed roles with God. The doctrine of election is one of the best ways for a church or a culture to test whether it has reversed roles with God. Now, this is a timeless problem, but it's especially problematic for the modern world. By modern world, I mean people who lived in the last 200 years. Because in the last 200 years, say, since the Enlightenment, three things are true of virtually all Western people. One, we assume human autonomy and self-determination. Two, we question authority. It's in our blood. And three, we sit in the judgment seat over God and decide if he exists. That's just assumed. All of those mark modernity. Now, I said it was an old problem, too, because Paul addressed it in Romans 9, 6 to 23. He said, why does God still find fault? Someone raises, for who can resist his will if this doctrine you're teaching is true, Paul? To which Paul answers, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, don't reverse roles. Don't reverse roles with God. Don't put him in the dock and you on the bench. Don't you become the potter and him the clay. Stay in your proper place. Few doctrines test whether we are now the judges of God or God is the judge of us, like the doctrine of election. Job, what a great help Job is to us. So many things we can learn from the book of Job. The sum of the matter at the end, Job has spent himself trying to defend himself to God, saying many inappropriate things and some true things. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have spent themselves saying half-truths, and, and it, nobody has said anything right in this book till 
Elihu comes along and speaks and God speaks. So the sum of the matter is this. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, what I did not know. And God responds like this. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. In other words, you listen, I talk. You learn, I teach. You receive, I define. To which Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The doctrine of election, like few others, has the tendency to reveal to us whether we are in Job's shoes when he was accusing or whether we're in Job's shoes when he's saying, I repent in dust and ashes. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't see you the way I need to see you. It's hard for a fish to know that he is wet. All there is is wet for a fish. And it's hard for a Western, modern human being to know that he is arrogant. All there is, is arrogance towards God in this world. Some of you have no idea that you are arrogant towards God. You say, how can I be arrogant towards God? I don't even think about Him. Things like that. C.S. Lewis was a great help to me here. Let me read what he said. The ancient man, that is the man who lived a long time ago, as opposed to the modern man, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He's the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease then he is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. That's virtually what it means to be modern. It's the air we breathe. We are like fish who swim in an ocean of arrogance toward God. Everybody you meet is arrogant towards God. You are arrogant towards God, and so am I. I am frightened at the degree of my whiplash, spontaneous, knee-jerk arrogance towards God when my way is crossed. Of course, it doesn't come out towards God. I'm a pastor, and I know how to do it horizontally. Are you being delivered from the ocean of arrogance? And that's as strongly as I think we can say it. Not have you been, but are you being delivered from the ocean of arrogance or are you still drenched to the bone? The doctrine of election is good for us. The crucible of God's sovereignty is a good place to help us say with Job, 
I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I pray that one of the effects of the doctrine of election at Bethlehem will be to produce that kind of brokenness. Fourth pastoral observation. The humble embrace. Mark the word. I don't say belief or affirmation. I say the humble embrace, and I mean it with all of its affectionate implications, the humble embrace of the doctrine, of the truth, of the reality of unconditional election and being embraced by it will produce in you and a church radical, sacrificial, risk-taking love. Oh, how many examples could be given of missions and ministry that have been born out of this conviction. William Carey, Adnaram Judson, David Livingston, John Patton, George Mueller, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, and on and on the list would go of people who have loved the truth that they are chosen by grace alone and have left the easy life, and gone to the hard life in order to tell other people about Christ. But instead of using one of those for an example, let me use Kristen Carlson. Kristen is out from us in Zambia. She's, what, 22 or so? And she is working with street children, with Action International, the leader of which is Doug Nichols, who himself is one of the great examples of a person who loves a vision of God that I'm talking about here, of unconditionally electing God. And with that kind of fiber in Doug Nichols' bones, he had colon cancer a few years ago, and they took his colon out and slapped a colostomy on his side, and he got on a jet and went to Rwanda. And his Jewish surgeon said, you can't do that, you'll die. And he said, what a great way to go. And he called his Jewish surgeon from Rwanda. I'm not dead. I'm caring for kids. We've lost 400,000 parents in the bloodshed. That's what the doctrine of election is for. Now let Kristen be the one who teaches for a few minutes because she wrote many of us. I I don't know how many of you got this email. On Thanksgiving morning, what a great way to get up and read when I turned my computer on. I thought I was going to do some thanking that day and here comes Kristen Carlson from Zambia. First of all, I'm quoting, I am thankful for God's unfathomable grace in choosing me. I have done nothing to deserve this, and I continually marvel at my Father's goodness to me. The reason I am thankful to be chosen is because I know what I have been chosen for. Chosen to proclaim the excellencies of God. Chosen to be eternally satisfied in God through Jesus. Chosen to live in the light and not darkness. Chosen to taste and see that He is God. That He is good. Now, at this point in in this service, some of you are listening to Kristen 
and you're listening for the first time maybe to somebody who's talking from the inside of the doctrine and you're listening to what it sounds like to wear it like a wonderful mantle instead of kind of where you've been most of the time, standing outside kind of, whoa, that's either not true or not helpful. My former church said that or... I've never seen this before, or you're always on the outside of the truth, just kind of looking in, suspicious and wondering, should I get even near that doctrine? And now you're listening to a testimony of somebody who some years ago stepped in and now lives from the inside of being chosen by God. That's what this testimony is about. It's meant to make us courageous and fearless and feel assurance I'll read you the rest of what she said. I am thankful that God chose Vasco, a hard, ignorant, rebellious street kid, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the fruit I already see in Vasco's life is testimony to his abiding in Jesus the vine. I am thankful for God's overflowing goodness in the past year. What an amazing work to be part of, becoming friends with street kids and sharing the only lasting hope with them. And as an insert here, I am thankful for the heart God has given me for these kids. Objectively speaking, I know it's not normal to love treading through garbage piles and sitting on a plush couch, parenthesis, a small metal object with a piece of cardboard on top, close parenthesis, with dirty, smelly kids. But so it is. I love it. That's very unnatural. That's the sort of thing that not just when you believe and fight about, but when you embrace and are embraced by the free, sovereign choice of you by God is released. It becomes a very radical thing. And if you ask, is that a biblical idea? Or is that just you're just using Christian and trying to make your point with that email. Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's elect. So now Paul must say this because he thinks that our being elect will be helpful in producing what he's about to say we should put on. He wouldn't just throw that in for nothing. He's saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's elect, holy and loved, compassion Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiving one another. And if any has a complaint against another, forgive as you have been forgiven by the Lord. So forgive one another. That's all flowing out of the first statement. As chosen ones, put this on. Kristen put it on and went to Zambia. Where will you go? What will you do differently if you put it on? Here's one other emotional effect that the doctrine of election is intended in the Bible to have. Not just my idea. When Paul says in Romans 8, 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? <gasps> what's the effect of that supposed to be? Does he just say that? I mean, what's the point of that rhetorical question? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I mean, the point of that is, are you one? And then you say, 
Yes. And then you say, well, nobody can make a charge stick against you. Go out and do something radical. I mean, what else would he say that for? Just to help us watch cleaner videos? Be radical with your life. You are absolutely secure. I chose you before the creation of the world. You are mine. I will work in you to see to it that you stay faithful. Now work for me. Go bless the world in my name. Oh, if we had this massive assurance that comes, according to the Apostle Paul, from... Being elect. I close with one last practical pastoral thought. Do not think of the doctrine of election apart from Jesus Christ. Keep Jesus in the center of the doctrine of election. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. I think that means when God contemplated the possibility or the intention that he had of embracing a people for himself. He also had at the very same time in mind that he would save them through Jesus Christ. And in no other way did he contemplate us in fellowship with himself than through Jesus. So from eternity... It's as though Christ were slain before the foundation of the world. He saw through the cross the redeemed and he chose a redeemed people in relationship to Jesus. Here's the practical implication of that this morning, right now, as we close. In order for God to gather a people for himself in this room right now, to draw people to himself He does not come to each one of you and whisper, you're elect. You will never know, apart from Christ, your standing in God's family. He doesn't separate himself off, leave Christ behind, and then walk around saying, you're elect, and you're elect, and you're elect. There's nothing like that in the Bible. You must never exercise your mind trying to figure out if you are elect apart from the way God did it, and here's the way God did it. God sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for sinners, to rise again, triumphant over death and sin and Satan. And then God said, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. And he says one other thing. This one even gets closer to the heart. He said in 1 John 5, 10, whoever believes on the Son has the testimony in himself. Now, I think that's a reference to the witness of the Spirit saying, you are Christ's. It's a witness that's probably not a little voice abstracted from Christ. Rather, it's a witness saying, you trust him, don't you? I trust him. Then you are Christ's and giving you the assurance that your faith is authentic and that you belong to Jesus and that the promise of God stands that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to him. And therefore, derivatively, yes, I am one of the elect. He will keep me forever. You don't ever come at it any other way than through Jesus. So let Christ be central. 
in this whole doctrine of election. And I would just now plead with you with the words of Jesus. I know my sheep. I know them. They know the voice of the good shepherd and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So I ask you, are you now hearing the voice of Jesus? Can you recognize it? Can you recognize as I speak out of this truth? That's the voice of Jesus behind there. And I know him and he is my shepherd. Father, as we close, I pray that everyone here will hear the voice of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Father, would you save, would you grant that we can put on, by this doctrine, as a church, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness so that we will never ever say again, this doctrine is irrelevant to marriage. Or this doctrine is irrelevant to children and my patience with my children. Or this doctrine is irrelevant to street kids in Zambia. Go ahead, preach your doctrine. I care for the street kids in Zambia. Oh God, forbid that Bethlehem would ever talk that way or ever think that way. But rather, I pray that one of the effects is that the unreached peoples of the Sichuan province of China would be reached because of the doctrine of election, freeing and making radical the people in this room. I pray for all the unreached peoples of the world to be reached because the church returns home to her inheritance in the sovereign grace of God. 